Welcome to Coming Clean, the podcast dedicated to common sense environmental dialogue, environmental optimism, and real environmental solutions. This show is proudly powered by Orsted. Welcome to the Coming Clean podcast. I am not Benji Backer, but Stephen Perkins. Nice to meet you. I serve as COO of the American Conservation Coalition, and if you listen to the bonus episode we put out previously, you'll know that Benji is taking a break from the show, and I will be the interim host. Today's topic, the energy transition, will require a ton of resources, one of which is people. Labor and talent will be vital to making our clean energy future happen. I am joined by the CEO of the Federation of American Scientists, Dan Correa, today to talk about just that. Dan, thank you so much for joining the show today. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm delighted to be here. Likewise, uh, happy to have you here. So you're the Chief Executive Officer for the Federation of American Scientists, uh, which uh, is, is a pretty considerable organization. It's been around since, uh, since the 40s, uh, has a really interesting founding story. Uh, I'd love some more background from you just about what FAS does, kind of what that story is, and then how you got into this role. Absolutely. Um, well, excited to be here. Um, and I'm excited about the work that, that FAS does. So as you mentioned, this organization was founded back in the 40s. Uh, I'm not sure if you've seen the summer blockbuster Oppenheimer, but it was actually the scientists featured in that film, um, who are the scientists behind the Manhattan, who came together in 1945 and um, decided that at the dawn of the nuclear age, issues of um, nuclear weapons and national security were, were too important and becoming too technical in nature for scientists and the scientific community to sit on the sidelines. So this organization, my organization, got its start as um, an organization a public interest organization devoted to the idea that we need more engagement from the science community on issues of critical uh, policy importance and social impact. Um, and that mission is something we carry through today. Um, in, in, in today's world, we, we work on, uh, we continue to work on issues of, um, of uh, nuclear weapons and, and related national security issues, but we also work on a much broader range of topics, um, ranging from climate to economic opportunity and clean energy, where um, the technical community and science and technology and innovation um, have a lot to say uh, and a lot of ideas to offer as part of the solutions to these pressing societal problems. I got to this work um, through a slightly different story, actually, I, I, I um, myself, I, I actually came um, to this organization after spending time in government um, back in in the Obama administration. Um, I had a chance to serve in the White House, where I worked on a range of issues, including crafting President Obama's innovation strategy. Um, and for me, that experience was just massively transformational. Um, I had always been, uh, throughout my career, um, someone who has worked on science, technology, and energy and related 
policy issues. Um, but my time in government, uh, I think, was a for me a, like a deep education um, in how government actually works, and um, created, I think, in me a lifelong dedication to helping it work better on these issues. And so that's a lot of what we do today at this organization and, and why I'm so committed to it. It's the biggest lever we have um, in, in all of these um, domains. And um, we need more smart people, including the science community, focused on helping it set its agenda and helping it implement good ideas better. Yeah. And, and I want to talk a little bit about the role that um, policy plays in the scientific community and why there is why it is so important that you have a liaison between the two. But I actually, I, I, I want to go back a little bit further for you and, and before you got in, in, into even government work or anything like that, what led you down the path of, of policy? And I know your education background's in economics. What was it that, you know, when you're in your younger, your college days that made you think, I, I want to go into the policy space. I want to work with, with government or I want to do kind of things that you've done before FAS. For me, it was, it had a lot to do with where I grew up. So I grew up outside of, um, just outside of Schenectady, New York, which if you're not familiar, um, is the place where General Electric was founded and grew yeah. uh, um, over much of the 20th century. In, in recent years, including when I was growing up there, um, much of that economic activity and much of its workforce had moved um, both to other parts of the country and abroad. And the experience of living in a Rust Belt community it, 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 uh, uh, in a city that was that was built for a much larger population, the, the population of the town had shrunk substantially. Um, motivated motivated me very much um, to seek answers to the questions about why regions and communities thrive, and what it is that we can do to help places like Schenectady find their footing and become more active participants in the 21st century economy. And, and so, so that is something that I carried with me to um, my journey through higher education. Um, I spent a good deal of time studying political science, government, um, and ultimately, um, the more time I spent um, researching and studying these questions like regional divergence, the more honed in and focused I became on, on issues related to um, innovation, entrepreneurship, the types of transformations that are critical for regions to grow and thrive. And so that was how I got in, involved in public policy because what I, the thing I realized was um, government has a deeply underappreciated role in this. Um, and it's a role that, that, that there are lots of things we can do through public policy and arguably, um, it's, it's where there's a binding constraint on helping places like Schenectady, uh, in, in my childhood, um, find their footing. So that's how I got into, into, into policy. So I came into science and psychology through the notion of studying economics and innovation and, and, and economic growth and competitive clusters in science. 
Well, I, I think the story of, of that hometown and, and what they went through, especially with some of the job loss and the change of their economy, is, uh, is helpful in the conversation we're going to have today about the energy transition and how we, uh, how we develop and, and retain the talent in that industry as that transition happens. But before we go there, I, I want to talk about that piece about why policy is so important to the science community. I, I mean, I, I think anyone who pays attention uh, to Congress or, or to our government mm -hmm. knows that it is not run by scientists. It is not run by, uh, by people who have a background in some of these really important areas. And so um, obviously FAS is sort of uh, what I would consider like a liaison between the two. You're bridging the gap between government and industry and, and, and a lot of that work that happens. Um, why is it so important that that, uh, that that bridge is built? We have a robust post-World War II consensus um, that underpins the economic growth of this country as experienced since. And so it'd be, I think it would be um, a deeply overlooking that consensus to not start with the observation that that the federal government and policymakers in particular, um, on a on a bipartisan basis, throughout that time period, have valued investing in advancing the frontier of science and technology. Um, and that, those investments um, have given us, through lots and lots of actions of the federal government and policymakers, um, massive, massive breakthroughs that transform the economy, lifted millions out of poverty, um, extended lifespans, and brought us technology that has dramatically reshaped the way we live our lives. So I think the number one, the number one component here is that these are deeply intertwined. And to the extent that we care about progress, economic growth, productivity growth, and solving our most pressing challenges, scientists and, and the, the diverse communities of scientists who are working on all of these problems actually have a lot to say, right? And so that, that's reason one. Reason two is that it's increasingly true that most of the pressing public policy issues that we face have some component of complexity uh, or underpinning that is technical in nature. Just think about climate and clean energy, right? Um, think about artificial intelligence. Even immigration, um, these issues that are the most important questions facing policymakers at any given moment. I mean, think about think about uh, the pandemic and Operation Warp Speed. Um, th these 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 issues and domains. Um, increasingly, I think policymakers are looking for counsel, looking for expertise. Um, from the technical community for the option set. And so I think not only does this community uh, expand 
the set of opportunities that we have as a society. Um, but most of the issues that we're grappling with actually require some technical grounding and, and the perspectives of scientists and technology. Um, and finally, and I think this is really important, this is a, in a world uh, where it feels like every single issue is just an opportunity for political fracturing. Many of these issues are, are remain deeply bipartisan. This is an area, and not all, but this is an area where we find that some measure of this consensus continues to hold up. And I think that's a deeply, deeply important feature of civil society. Um, so that, those are the three things that, that I see off the bat um, to your question. Well, and I think the last one in particular is really important, especially for our audience. And, and something we always say at ACC is that, um, especially climate, right? Very contentious yeah. issue. It's something that uh, big generational divides, ideological divides. But when you are in the, uh, when you're in the space, when you're in the industry, so to, say, so, so to speak, uh, it becomes very clear that there's actually a lot more consensus on, these, on many of these solutions um, then there is disagreement. There, there's, of course, a lot of debate about specifics and timelines and, and, and how we do it and how we fund it and all that. Uh, but I think a real reason for hope for people is that, number one, rest assured that your government officials are not just winging this. They have organizations like yours, people like you, who are advising them, who are keeping them abreast of, uh, of you know, the best practices and, and, and how we can move forward here. But number two, that there are a lot of areas of, of common, uh, common agreement. So I think that's really important. Um, and as we go into the topic of today's discussion, which is about the uh, talent pipeline for the energy transition, um, I, I want people listening to keep that in mind um, because the energy transition is another area where I, I think there's more consensus than, than people may think. Um, so one of the uh, publication that your colleagues wrote in August or published in August, um, Elizabeth Vance and Jay Sullivan, they wrote a uh, publication of Building the Talent Pipeline for the Energy Transition, uh, Aligning U.S. Workforce Investment for Energy Security and Supply Chain Resilience. Uh, and I encourage people to go check it out. I think we can probably link it in the show notes. It's definitely a great primer to read through on this issue. Um, and the premise of it is that, look, we've got a lot of funding coming in, number one, for an energy transition between chips, between IRA, between all these things. But number two, there, there is just a, uh, you know, the indus industries in this country in general are going toward that as well. Um, and we have two concerns. Number one, there's the concern of how do we get money to where it needs to be? How do we fund these projects, get them started up? But number two, how do we acquire and train the talent that we need to then design, develop, and manage these clean energy projects and clean tech? Um, so this will be a pretty big change. And I think people get very um, scared by change, uh, especially on an economic level. Um, but our country has gone through a lot of changes in it, throughout its history in terms of the workforce, in terms of, of, of uh, industry and things like that. So I want to start by this and just ask you, how do you see the energy transition playing out in an ideal world, particularly when it comes to the talent piece? So this is a, 
this is a moment that I think not many of us would have anticipated we'd be in just a few years ago. I think it's like important to contextualize. Um, and, and a couple things are different from where folks thought we would be. First, um, I think the, the news is with respect to um, local temperatures, sea levels, and general growing dynamism in climate and weather is scary. Um, their scientists are increasingly concerned. Um, and so that has a very important focusing effect, I think, for many in the community, um, as well as policy. Secondly, as you mentioned, the recent legislation, IRA and otherwise, um, I mean, just, just has changed the terms of debate about what a reasonable timeline might look like. These are massive investments in uh, renewables, um, in, in retrofits, in hydrogen, in vehicle infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. And I, from, from as, as someone who works on science policy writ large, the key element here that, that's often missing from scientific breakthrough to happening at scale in the real world is just most of these resources are dedicated to fostering the pathway to deployment. So if you think about, for example, um, just the, the recent announcements about um, technical scientific breakthroughs on fusion energy, for example, that's deeply exciting. It created tons of buzz around the world. Um, and yet we have no timeline, right? There, there's no timeline on which that is going to be uh, powering your community. Um, if, if it ever will, it, it, it has significantly increased our optimism, but I think it just goes to underscore, um, the, the, just the chasm, especially in a sector like energy between what's happening in the lab, um, and what's proven in, in, in laboratory settings and what's actually feasible and, and economical, uh, in the real world. Um, but amid this surge of money, um, there's reasons for optimism that this is that these resources, along with the increased focus in what's happening globally, um, are accelerating significantly the timeline for potentially reaching net zero and, and engaging in, in a in a wholesale transformation of the economy and decarbonization. Um, there are a few binding constraints that that conspire to slow that progress, right? Um, I think, one, you know, folks look to um, a bunch of the critical minerals and materials that we're going to need um, as uh, a significant open question. Where are the reserves? How quickly can, can we accelerate finding what we need in order to remake industries um, like, like um, um, automobiles. Two, um, deployment 
of large scale um, infrastructure requires um, not just technical know-how, right? You know, renewables are already cost competitive, absent incentives, um, out-competing coal, for example. Um, but it's like a very real question. How quickly can um, our electricity, electrical grid and infrastructure um, actually transform uh, in order to accommodate um, the needs of renewables, et cetera. And I think that's like the most salient example. Um, but I think there's lots and lots of questions of deployment uh, that, that are going to be important to grapple with if acceleration is going to be feasible. And then lastly, and, and this is to the point of the paper and to, to your question, um, talent workforce amid reshoring of supply chains as part of its acceleration in this rent. I think this is one of the big potential challenges and there's things that we can do. About. So you, you reference the paper that the proposal that we've published, um, which the thrust of the idea is to replicate um, some of the best of what's worked in the federal department of labor's um, trade adjustment assistance program and craft something similar for this kind of stuff. Um, and, and for those who don't know, um, in order to minimize the downsides of um, offshoring, uh, the federal government has programs that are dedicated to helping um, workers avail themselves of the training they need in order to find new, um, new jobs. Um, this is a piece of, of what um, an overall talent strategy um, will need to be. Um, and I think government has a significant role in, in fostering. But the biggest question is timing and acceleration. And so you have to look to um, respective candidate communities that are that, that, that on which we need to draw. So one, um, in quite immediately, lots of advanced industries need STEM talent. Um, we are making it quite hard right now it, for um, STEM talent uh, to immigrate to the United States. There are tangible things we could do um, to enhance um, STEM immigration. Um, and, and we're seeing that um, that's going to be a, a, not just in, you know, there's stories right now about the semiconductor industry struggling to hire. Um, that's going to be a critical area, not just in semiconductors, but in a whole host of um, technologies that underpin uh, the, the clean energy revolution. Two, um, there's a whole bucket like the Department of Labor's trade adjustment assistance, a whole bucket of programs that we're going to need and that we're, this administration is already talking about to help folks get access to training and opportunities in different sectors. We're going to need people doing technical work in manufacturing, retrofitting, et cetera. Um, and that, that is a fundamentally an exercise in retraining. There are some very successful programs at the state level 
that need to be turbocharged and repl replicated. Um, but the, these things are really hard um, because the, the, the historic challenge of workforce training programs has been training people for jobs that may or may not exist. And so ensuring the ne nexus and the feedback loop from those investments to jobs that are there where there's really growing demand is, is and then finally, the third pillar here is um, ensuring that our talent pipeline, K-12 um, and post-secondary and, and, and technical training um, are continuing to evolve over time um, to meet the needs that, that I just articulated. And so um, that those systems can be quite responsive. Um, but these things take time, and time is what we don't have. So I think this is in particular, and, and for this audience of folks that, that are thinking about this and, 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 and probably grappling with some questions with talent and career, um, this is an area where we, we need massively more. I do when I look at, at, at how other countries, uh, particularly, um, you know, obviously China educates their citizens uh, quite uh, quite a bit um, for these more te technical roles, and, and they've been doing that for a while. When I look at uh, American education, I used to work um, in a role where I was working with CTE organizations, career technical uh, education organizations, and the funding was always a challenge to get right and distribute uh, in, in a way that made sense, and, and even just interest in these programs. It, it was hard to get kids interested in a whether it's a STEM education, a STEM career pathway, uh, or whether it's, you know, more traditional CTE, there are issues with getting women into STEM, getting minorities into STEM. Like th these are, are, are such huge issues and probably, you know, uh, probably the, the topic of a whole other, uh, a whole other podcast. Um, but when you look at the education side, cause you mentioned a few things, you mentioned, uh, the, the, the supply chain, you've mentioned immigration. That's a big piece that I want to touch on. We talked about some of the timeline, the challenges with those training programs. But on the education piece, how do you think about um, that challenge of, of getting kids, some of them are, are actual kids, right, middle school, junior high, but also people are going into college and, and are, are becoming adults and trying to figure out where they want to go work. I talk with a lot of people who are like, I want to go into clean energy. I don't know how to do that or, or where to start. How do you think about that big challenge, though, of getting people interested, getting them educated correctly, and then getting them aligned uh, in the areas that we need them to be in? I think, so I think, I think first of all, this is, this is incredibly dynamic. We are talking about a stubborn challenge um, amid this massive influx of resources and focus. But things can change quickly. So I also just want to like, uh, ensure that that we acknowledge that that this is a moment in time. Um, so I think there's a backdrop here that that you're referring to, right? Which is um, when we look at um, test scores compared to peer country in in math and and and, and other um, subjects that we think are of growing importance rather than decreasing. Importance. Um, there's significant cause for concern, and and especially amid um, some of the the backsliding during the pandemic, um, 
there are the scores are going the wrong direction. And it's particularly true when you focus in on um, populations that have traditionally um, not been equally represented in some of these careers um, that, that we think are, are, are a really critical part of the future. So I think that's like important to put in context as a backdrop. Like we've got a lot of work to do um, to continue to invest in and improve our education system so that it, it can provide a springboard um, for economic mobility, so that it can provide a springboard for um, folks in, 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 in regions um, where there may be dying industries, think of the region I came from, um, to where they, they can be trained to help catalyze new industry. Um, and I think that that's, that requires more focus on, on both sides of the aisle. Like this is an area um, of, of deep need and investment. Whether or not um, your passion and your belief is that, is that climate change is the driver, right? There's a whole host of national security justifications for this. And regardless, um, many, advanced manufacturing, um, be it for semiconductors or for um, clean energy technology, is, 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 is part of the future that I think lots of policymakers aspire for America to have a greater role. Um, one of the challenges in having a conversation at the national level is like this is a largely federated system, and that that applies to lots of workforce efforts that you mentioned, uh, and applies to K twelve context too. Um, but what that does offer us is uh, an opportunity to showcase and invest in bright spots and replicate them across the country in different contexts. And one of the things that that gives me um, that gives me hope. In, in, uh, against a backdrop of that data that I mentioned, um, is there, I think we, we have a, an opportunity before us to make some different kinds of investments in our education that, that can allow us to build the nimble and tailored, um, education system that that you and i are sort of imagined um and and like let me just do sort of like i mean an example um so right now lots of student the vast majority of student writing in in k-12 actually goes unreviewed teachers do not have time um these are incredibly demanding jobs and um and, and what it means is that students are missing an opportunity to get feedback on their writing um, and that could be very powerfully um, help them learn and continue to, to grow. Um, there are lots of tech-based tools. Like if you just think about a world in which chat GPT exists, there's like a massive opportunity for us to explore uh, models that are um, AI-assisted um, tutors to to help engage in both quicker feedback uh, and robust feedback for students. Now, that's not just for reading. That can be deployed in lots of contexts, including um, in, in CTE settings, where 
we need to rapidly be training folks for opportunities that maybe didn't even exist a little while ago. Um, and so I think of some of these types of tools and opportunities uh, as part of the future where we both need to be investing in models uh, and piloting them and evaluating if, in fact, they, they work as well as uh, the initial evidence is, is suggesting they do. Well, and, and I, I do agree with you. There's a lot of opportunity there with the technologies that are emerging. Um, I use Grammarly to, 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 you know, to test my writing, and it's terrible. I always get very annoyed by it. <laughs> um, but that's okay. We're, we're improving. Um, I, I want to talk about, I'm going to be the layman's advocate and say, retraining, re-education, or, or you know, um, trying to bridge this gap in skills that people um, who are currently in the workforce will need to go into new jobs and people who are entering the workforce will need to start their careers. What does that look like? Are we talking about, you know, a coal miner who's going to a, a technical college now? And what does the funding for that look like? like? What are the logistics behind retraining a workforce and what are the venues that that happens in? So I think there's, there's a number of different settings. And I think that this is an area where we need more sharp and I also just want to acknowledge that this is an area where I think lots of the trade-offs and the, and the challenges are, are really significant. I, 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 think, I think we need um, lots of smart people um, focused on this question. Um, and so I think it starts by acknowledging some of the, the reality that, that um, you're not you, you, you have to meet people where they are, right? You can't say, um, sorry about your job. All you got to do is get trained for this other job. And I know, by the way, that's going to be five towns over. It's going to be an hour and a half commute. Um, and it pays less. Um, that is not a satisfying answer, nor should we expect it to, right? Um, and so I think, I think any tangible, successful answer to these questions um, needs to agree on that as a starting point. Um, the same technology that is described, like I, I think it's it's useful to think of generative AI as possible, but a lot of this preceded um, the recent focus on ChatGPT um, and other and other tools. Um, if you think about um, online and blended learning models. I think, I think there's like a, a, a growing wedge over time of training models that can be delivered um, um, both online and in person that can be a powerful part of the solution. I think a bunch of that's still pretty early in the workforce content. But, but to your question more, more specifically, um, there are models around the country of, of yes, where technical, um, technical colleges, um, workforce boards and nonprofits have, um, both resources and training programs, um, that the goal is to help with the use case you just described. But I think it's facile to say that, that like, this is both solved, um, and that I think the the political questions and ramifications are are something that that folks have a really strong answer to. And I think that's actually I think that's just an underlying reality, right? 
So let's talk about the the common rhetoric, and and this is where we start to get into the the side of the podcast where we say, okay, we've collected your critics, and they they want to pose some questions about uh, about their big concerns. I mean, I I've gone out to to the Permian Basin of West Texas and you know talked to oil and gas people, and 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 for them, right, they love their community, they have great pride in their job, they see themselves as being the powering force behind America. Um, now, we're not talking an energy transition about about closing down Midland, Texas and, and telling them to, to go find something else. But we are, um, people feel as though we are telling them if they're in an industry like this, or, or you think about coal miners, right? We're telling them, hey, your days are numbered. And we, we there may be, to your point, there may or may not be some jobs available uh, that, that, you know, we can use your skills as a foundation to train you for. Um, but that's a very scary thing for people to think about their livelihoods being in danger, to think about, you know, for many of these people, it's multi-generational. So they're thinking about uh, future generations uh, that they would like to continue on in the industry, uh, that being at, at risk. If, if, if your critics were here and, and you were having a drink, you were having coffee with them, what are the things you're telling them to reduce some of those fears, address those fears, and 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 make it known that this in this transition we do have to have uh, kind of what many people would call a just transition or or logical transition, one that prioritizes people as well as uh, the planet and and the uh, the climate objectives we have. Yeah, I think I think it's a really important question. Um, both for the like the obvious political ramifications, but just I think uh, in order to do right by people, um, and, and so the answer I, I would offer up is, is is first of all I think as I said meeting folks where they are acknowledging that these are difficult questions and we need a robust policy response and need to be doing more not less, um, but I, but I think it's important to also highlight some of the areas where there is agreement. So. Um, one of the, the technologies that we're particularly excited about amid this transition is geothermal. And I think, I think geothermal offers um, some evidence that this transition may not play out exactly the way um, everyone thinks for communities um, like the Permian Basin that you just described, you know. Uh, Lots of the expertise and infrastructure um, that is critical to oil and gas um, is actually the driving force behind unlocking the promise of of geothermal energy, um, which is potentially something that 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 will um, be deployed on massive scale, uh, including in communities um, where that expertise comes. So I think that's that's like an in it, I think a, a reason for us to have some humility about what the future looks like in terms of its differential effects and impacts on communities, because I think um, there are likely to be um, areas where um, these communities actually are, are, are benefiting significantly. And, and um, similarly, I think, as I mentioned, um, critical minerals um, is is also uh, um, in industry where we are seeing in lots of the communities that are adversely affected. Um, this is going to be a growing industry, um, 
critical minerals that that underpin a lot of the technology in um, uh, critical for the clean energy transition, and especially amid a transition where increasingly concerns about supply chain and China mean that those resources um, are incredibly important to find domestically. Um, I think similarly, carbon dioxide removal, similar know-how, expertise, and technology that that the oil and gas industry brings to those technologies will be critical in the future as well. Um, so I, I think answer one is I think understanding um, and and investing in helping to secure um, up to secure. Uh, a just transition, as you describe, I think that that means entering these conversations with humility, and then and then answer two, I think, is recognizing that the future may not look quite as as you described, um, because there are ways in which these communities actually have a pretty big role in 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 what the um, decarbonized future looks like. And, and I think one of the biggest thing for these communities is knowing that um, that they are not being overlooked in the transition, right? Knowing and hearing from people that, no, actually, we're thinking about how we do this in a way that preserves your livelihood and preserves future generations' livelihoods. Um, I, I think that's really important as well. Um, I, I want to fit in two of the things that we've been mentioning throughout and, and just kind of drive down a little bit deeper, and then we'll close up here. Supply chain, mm -hmm. critical minerals, really something that we talked about a lot at ACC um, as you talk about reshoring, I think that's a really great opportunity for uh, America to be back in the manufacturing seat and for us to have some real leadership on a global scale. So that's number one. And then immigration, obviously a mess of a system, even for highly skilled people, very difficult to come to this country and uh, illegal through the legal channels. Um, but let's start on supply chain. How do we best prepare for what the ambition is on critical minerals, which is that we start to mine more of those and source more of those here, and, and particularly aligning talent um, for America leading on that front. How, how do we best prepare for, for, for that transition? I think the, the number one thing that we are seeing and hearing um, on uh, realigning supply chains is simply that there's a lot of relearning to do. And I think that's, I don't mean that in terms of um, um, talent and workforce as much as um, investors uh, um, and, and industry um, that are now um, exploring new business models and, and, and understanding um, and doing the due diligence to invest with different incentives in place um, to make these things happen. These conversations are like happening in real time. And so you, know, you go to a conference and sit in on some of these conversations that are happening uh, among um, the different communities and the, like the um, along industry, investment community, and some policymakers, and it's it's um, the 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 surprising thing is that um, this a lot of this is um, these conversations are happening for the first time um, simply because we these things many of these things are, have been have been gone for some time. So I think um, there's a bunch of investment that's that's coming that's growing um technologies improving allowing us to have a better sense of um what what resources are where uh, i think we're seeing the news with growing regularity um 
on on the workforce side, um, I think it's 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 going to be a pretty significant um, recruiting challenge, uh, and and I, I but I think it's a good one. I think it's one that um, we're we're likely um, we're going to need um, workforce training and transition um, um, resources from government to correspond to I think the imperative on resource supply chain. So I think this is a, a, a big policy opportunity in general. So that, that that's on um that's what I would say on 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 reshoring and on critical minerals. And then on the immigration front, um we've we've laid the the kind of context there, but what do you and, and I, I know you don't work in immigration policy chiefly, but what do you see as as the the roadblocks uh to opening up entry for highly skilled people that we're going to need for uh for this transition? Um I think this is a this is an issue where um, the political challenges are significant. I think I think generally in Washington, um, I mean the numbers uh, and the evidence uh, speak for themselves. Immigrants, in particular, um, high skilled immigrants, STEM immigrants, that um, this has been studied and documented over and over. They punch above their weight in terms of economic contributions, positive externalities from the work that they're doing, whether it's starting companies or, um, or, or playing critical technical roles in established companies. Um, this is generating um, economic output that accrues to this country, this tax base, and communities where folks live. Um, and, and, and they do all of this at a higher rate than um, and with greater impact than 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 you would expect, um, or or uh, compared to to others. So it it the 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 justification whether we're talking about a clean energy transition or we're talking about semiconductors or we're talking about other industries, um, there's a strong ju- underlying. So I think, um, but but it, it it I also want to acknowledge that um, for lots of people. Um, that narrative, even though this is what we have done time and again over the course of our history as a country, um, that narrative is, is, is less well-known. Um, and, and it, it, there is a perception among, um, folks who already, you know, may feel, um, like their jobs are at risk, that this is a zero sum phenomenon. Um, when in fact, I think the evidence is to the contrary. So I think there's a, a pretty significant ongoing um, recognition among the folks that work on these topics in policy um, to engage in some of the issue education on why this is so important and why um, these are beneficial um, uh, steps and, and, and why enhancing STEM immigration can be so helpful for the economy. Um, I also think that um, areas where I think that there's the most promise is finding bipartisan areas of agreement. Um, uh, national security sectors, places where um, where where targeted interventions uh, of inviting more and and welcoming more can can actually be um, most most helpful. Um, so I think this is an area where the thing that we think about is what what can you start with that we can all agree on, where we um, inarguably um, can demonstrate that more immigration is going to be indispensable for part of the solution. 
um, and that benefits us all. And so I think that's that's a lot of areas where we're we're spending time in those types of areas. Um, um, but I think the the broader context is is a tough one. Um, you know, in light of just the 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 the, the polarization and, and political context of immigration broadly. Yeah, it's 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 definitely a, a touchy area right now, and and probably difficult even just to open up a conversation uh, on immigration at this point. Well, I, I think what people will hear throughout this episode is number one, this is a complex problem. There's a lot of different things that are interwoven into making our energy transition happen, but um, there's also been a lot of work on on getting that started. There's been a lot of there are a lot of smart people in organizations like UNFAS on the case, and so. Uh, just want to thank you for that and sharing some of your insights here today. If you were to give people, I think what people often struggle with, um, young people who listen in particular, is great information, love that I now have it, what do I do next, right? So if there were an action item or or something actionable that you could give our listeners, what is that thing? At FAS, we um, run a project the day one which is actually how I, I came to this organization. I, I, I started this project ahead of the 20. It is dedicated um, to the premise that anyone with a good idea for what policy should look like um, can contribute to the policy process, even if they are not themselves policy experts. And so my invitation for the audience would be um, if these are issues that you care about, if there are particular issues where you think governments at some level should be doing something differently, um, we'd love to hear from you and we'd love to work with you to take the kernel of an idea into something we think, um, with our help, can have massive potential to become actual policy. Um, because there's a science and a process to doing that. Um, and we've done it over and over again, um, um, including with some of these massive pieces of legislation that we've talked about. So I think that is one specific example of how folks can raise their hand and get involved. Um, but it's, I think, a, an example of that, that illustrates a broader point that I think you started with, which is that if you have a general passion for this area, um, and, and I think, as you said, this is a, a generational phenomenon, um, that early career uh, folks entering the workforce are trying to figure out how they can contribute most, um, that contributing uh, in ways like this, raising your hand and, and, and jumping into the fray with an entrepreneurial spirit, I think is a really, really good way to start. Whether or not you want to go join government someday or not, um, this can be a pretty exciting way uh, to deepen your expertise on the connectivity and deep intertwining of policy and, and industry in this, in this space. Pretty good resume builder to say that you, you know, provided an idea yeah. for a piece of legislation. That's pretty good. Um, I love that whole concept. So definitely encourage people to check that out. Well, Dan, we're, we're going to do a qu three quick rapid fire questions, uh, which are a little more casual in nature. Uh, and the first one, we love this question at ACC. It, it revolves around a lot of what we do. Favorite national park or like what's the place in nature that you default to going to whenever you want to get outdoors? Well, I mentioned I grew up in Schenectady. And it's not a national park, but it's a state park. 
the Adirondacks. It, it is um, beautiful, not what people think of when they think of New York. Uh, and it's where Teddy Roosevelt spent a bunch of time. So I bet folks who go. are fond of him uh, can can go channel him. That's our whole audience. So I love that. Um, <laughs> next, what what is, if, if you just had one book that you'd recommend right now? It could be something that you read a long time ago. It's a classic, something that you recently read. What's that one book recommendation for people? Uh, Ernest Hemingway, Tender is the Night. Brilliant writer. I love Beautiful. it. Beautiful. And then finally, and, and I think you touched on some of this a little bit, but what is an emerging innovation that excites you the most right now? Um, I'm particularly excited about the promise of, uh, of geothermal. Uh, and I think I gave, gave some details about why. Um, but I think, I think science and technology can radically reshape some of the trade-offs in, in this energy debate. And I think we're seeing that with examples like geothermal and, and down the road, um, fusion energy. So excited about keeping an eye on and, and championing that. I love it. Well, if you want to find Federation of American Scientists, they are on X, formerly known as Twitter. You have to say that now, uh, at FA Scientist. And then uh, Dan is uh, at Korea Dan. Uh, and so, Dan, I, I want to just thank you for coming on again. Really appreciate your, your uh, expertise and, um, and perspectives here. Um, is there anything you want to leave the, the audience with before we, uh, before we, we end here? No, I just say I, I, I appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation. I think this is critically important. I, I think um, your audience will inherit the earth, and their interest in this topic is going to determine our success. So very excited to find uh, folks to work with, um, whether it's on policy or otherwise. Thanks for the opportunity to be here. Awesome. Thank you, sir. And before we jump, the Coming Clean podcast is grateful to be powered by Orsted, a wonderful company strengthening America's energy security with reliable and domestic clean energy. Through its integrated renewable energy solutions, Orsted is creating American jobs, investing in American communities, and driving American innovation, all while preserving our country's natural habitats. A clean energy future truly connects us all, and Orsted is helping lead the charge. To learn more, visit us.orsted.com.